differentiates us? What if I went further and told you that as a believer, theology is not an optional topic for you? That actually God commands us to know and to study theology. See, theology isn't just for pastors or for those who have a passion for it. Theology is for everyone, and everyone has some sort of theology, whether they realize it or not, whether it's good or whether it is bad. To help us understand this, let us first define what we mean by theology. Theology is made up of two Greek words, theos and logos. Theos is God. Logos means word, speech, expression, reason. Uh, theology is better understood as uh, theologia. So logia is a form of the word logos, and that means discourse. So theology is a discourse about a particular subject, in this case, God. It can also be understood as knowledge of God. Just think of other words with theology at the end of it, biology, bibliology, zoology, so forth. In our passage today, in 2 John Four, verses 4 through 6, we are going to see how theology is not optional. Rather, it is commanded. And then we'll look at how our theology is what forms our behavior, behavior, both to God and to others. It is important for us to understand this before going further in John's letter. For next week, the section starting in verse 7 deals with the topic of false teaching. So our passage today lays the foundation for John's discussion on that topic. So let's go ahead and read 2 John 4 through 6. I rejoice greatly because I have found some of your children living according to the truth, just as the Father has commanded us. But now I ask you, lady, not as if I were writing a new commandment to you, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, thus you should walk in it. Now, one clarification there in verse 5, uh, when John is talking about, uh, when he mentions the term lady, he's referring to uh, the church as a whole, uh, as we discussed last week. So we're going to start by looking at verse 4, and then we'll look at verses 5 and 6 together. It is in verse 4 that John tells us that theology is not optional. But before we get to that, we need to see that theology is also the reason that John rejoices. The, uh, the truth in verse 4, as, as, it's, as John states, it is best understood as who God is, right? It is, when John uses the word truth, he is talking theology there. Uh, specifically in John's immediate context, he's talking about Christology, who Jesus is, right? This is a common theology. Uh, topic that John is bringing up. He brought it up often in 1 John. He brings it up here again in 2 John, and he'll talk more about it next week. Uh, but the Christology, who Jesus is, and Christology is just an area of theology. So when we speak of truth, when John speaks of truth, he is speaking of theology, our knowledge and understanding of who God is. And John's epistles the truth is primarily focused on who Jesus is, and that's appropriate, especially in light of John 14, 6, where Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yet in order to know the truth as John desires for us to know it, 
And as God desires us to know it, we must be walking in all truth, which always points us to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the finished purpose of God's glory. He is uh, the telos of scripture. That is the intended, the intended end, the intended purpose of all of scripture. So to rightly know Christ and God, we must walk in truth. And this is what causes John to rejoice. This rejoicing of John is expressed in his third epistle as well. Uh, listen to what he writes in 3 John 3-4. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Just as you are living according to the truth, I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are living according to the truth. So there, three times, truth is mentioned and that is the source of John's joy. This joy is like that of a parent raising a, a child and sending the child out on their own into the world and learning they are doing well and they are living as they were taught to live. For John, this is the end goal of discipleship. This is why he defends the truth so vigorously from false teachers in their lives. This is what he labors for. This is what he pains for. And, and the prayer that Jesus gives to the Father at the Last Supper in John 17 this is a key focus of the prayer, that the disciples and those who follow the disciples would be sanctified by the truth, that they would live and be united according to the truth. Throughout that prayer, Jesus keeps going back to how he has given them God's word, how he's given them God's truth to them for those purposes. When we submit our lives to our understanding of God, to truth, and live according to it, we are walking according to it. When John uses the word walking, it's synonymous with living, right? To walk is to live. This is why ensuring you have a right theology of God is so significant. And again, this is why John and the other apostles, along with Jesus, speak so frequently and so harshly against false teachers. In Acts 20, verse 31, it was the threat of false teachers that Paul warned the elders of Ephesus about for three years, day and night. That is what brought him to tears. He worked hard. He labored intensely as he trained up these elders. He constantly, regularly warned them about the threat of false teachers and how some of them would become false teachers. 25 of the 27 books in the New Testament speak on the topic of false teaching. So when John hears of those, walking according to the truth, walking in accordance to sound theology, those walking on the narrow path to the narrow gate, he rejoices. But John's pleasure isn't the main reason we walk in truth. As good as that is, it's not the main reason. Look at the end of verse 4. Theology, it's commanded. To know God rightly is a command. It's a duty for the believer. Uh, we can begin by looking back at the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. We'll go ahead and read it. Listen, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. These words I am commanding you today must be kept in mind, and you must teach them to your children and speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, and as you get up. You should tie them as a reminder on your forearm and fasten them as symbols on your forehead. Inscribe them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. 
This is a great Shema of the Old Testament. Shema means hear, to listen. Israel is commanded to listen and to hear something that is very important. One, that God is one. He is unique. There is no other like him. And second, we are called to love him with our entire being. The words of God must constantly be on our minds. They must be taught to our children. They must forever be for be, be forever be before us in some capacity and some fashion. This echoes uh, Joshua 1.8 where it says, This law scroll must not leave your lips. You must memorize it day and night so you can carefully obey all that is written in it. Then you will be prosperous and you will be successful. God's word, his book, is truth. And in order for us to walk according to it, we must know it. And we must know it rightly. We are expected to know him, that's God, as he has revealed himself. So the question is, how has he revealed himself? Well, in Jesus. In fact, here in verse 4, John may have in mind specifically what he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, where he writes, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he gave us the commandment. That the truth the church is walking in, ultimately, is belief in the name of the Father's Son, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we love one another out of that truth, from that truth. And I think that's a fair summary of John's theology in these epistles. But we must not think that to, to know Jesus, ultimately, is like some blind faith, some blind acceptance of the reality in his name, but ultimately, it's about abiding in him, dwelling in him. And again, as we've come back to, it seems like every week, uh, the discourse of Jesus in John 14 and 15 make it clear that those who know him, those who abide in him, know and keep his teachings. They obey his words, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Also, when it comes to this matter, ignorance or laziness in regard to theology is not excusable. The Israelites, when they committed sins um, in the name of ignorance that they, they, they weren't aware of, they had to make sacrifices for them. In fact, they had to offer up as sacrifices for any sins that they weren't aware of that they had committed. Ignorance does not excuse the transgression, especially when we here in America have been blessed with so many resources, so many tools and abilities at our disposal to know God and to know his word. So to ignore our duty of knowing him and and of knowing and growing in the truth ultimately sets us up for what Paul writes in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. To idle in the truth and not to continue to grow in it is a form of suppression. To stunt growth is to suppress growth. We drift towards unholiness, not holiness. So when we are lazy or, or we just ignore our responsibility to know God, we drift into unholiness. And that will set us up for the wrath of God to be revealed from heaven against us if we continue in that way. This is why throughout the New Testament we hear the language of discipline and practice and self-control and focus and dying to self because everything in this world 
wants to keep you from the truth. It wants to keep you from studying and growing in theology and understanding of God. It moves you, the world moves you to worship idols rather than God. As you offer sacrifices in the form of time, money, energy, and affections to idols like sports, work, hobbies, social activities, or social media engagements. It is not that these things are evil, but when they prevent you from giving to God what is rightly his, they are mechanisms of evil. They are idols. They are devilish distractions that take your eyes off the road to righteousness just long enough to get you to hell. It is not an easy thing for the believer to walk according to truth. This echoes what Jesus talks about in Luke 14, 25, 35. We're not going to read it. Uh, But there Jesus says, he urges people, consider the cost of following him. Consider the cost of being his disciple. It's, It's not solely because of persecution that might come at you, but it's because of the effort that being a disciple of Christ will require of you when you become his disciple. It requires you to kill yourself daily, to die to self regularly. For me, as I prepare sermons, I have to die all the time to do them. There is nothing natural in me that says, yes, I get to read and I get to write a sermon for another week. No, there there are so many things I would rather do naturally within myself that I would rather pursue or put my time in than to do what is necessary to prepare the sermon. But I know what is true. I know what must be done. Despite how I have been conditioned over the years, God has called me to a task. Thus, I do what is necessary to do what is true to my purpose and and to uh, fulfill, to be faithful to his name. It would be arrogant of me to uh, say no to God because I don't feel like it. Rather, I ask God to help me. I ask God to give me strength. I ask God to help recondition me, to help train me to enjoy the labor that he has put before me. And the labor is not without its reward, right? It's not just labor and it's, and it's bitter and it's, and it's unfulfilling. It has its reward. Initially, though, going into it, it doesn't always feel that way. But it's through the labor that my cup gets filled. This is how I get to know him more. It's how I'm able to live my life free from the fear of death because I know that I'm abiding in him. But it's not easy, but it's necessary, though. And the work itself is not always pleasure-inducing, though the fruit is always, always worth the labor. It's the fruit of the labor that ultimately will get you through the dark moments in life, the painful moments, the moments of anxiety, uncertainty, and fear. But it requires discipline. It requires practice. We have to recondition ourselves from the ways of the world to the ways of truth. Romans 12.1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. A living sacrifice, a breathing and, and a walking, yet continually sacrificing ourselves, our desires for God's. This is ultimately how we worship him. God wants us to know him and to know him through his son 
who, as John calls the word of, of life, the word of eternal life, as he refers to Jesus in 1 John. And as we get to know Jesus and we get to know God, that knowledge, that truth, which is our theology of God, that forms our behavior. See, theology guides our actions not only towards God, but towards one another. We know how to rightly love because of what God commands us. John, in verses 5 through 6, encourages the church to continue to love one another. And that love is known and expressed in walking or living in obedience in accordance to the commands of God. We we spoke about the great Shema of the Old Testament of Deuteronomy 6, 4 uh, through 9, but we also hear that sounded once again in the New Testament. Look at Matthew 22, uh, 37 through 40. Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Jesus tells us that it is upon these two commandments that the entire law depend on. So to obey the law is to obey those two commands. The law helped the Israelites understand what they looked like in their given context. Yet at the same time, though the law does not apply to us directly, the law has not been abolished, nor has it been voided. Matthew 5.17, Jesus makes this clear. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. Jesus, his work, and the person of who he is fulfills the law. Romans 10.4, Paul writes, Christ is the end of the law with the result that there is righteousness for everyone who believes. Again, in 13.8 of Romans, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And when, we, and when we wonder what loving our neighbors and one another looks like in light of the New Testament, we simply only have to look and study the teachings of the apostles, which includes the Gospels, acknowledging that the knowledge of the Gospels is based off of the teachings of the apostles. So the whole New Testament, whether it be Paul or John, Peter, or any of the other apostles, all of it helps us grow in our knowledge and understanding of God and what he commands of us. Theology helps us in understanding how we are to love one another. And it does so by giving us insight into the who and the why of us. The who and the why of life, so to speak. We understand our purpose when we walk in the truth of God. Our theology shapes our understanding of mankind. This is what we call anthropology, the understanding of man. And this brings us to the Imago Dei, the image of God. Knowing and understanding the image of God is fundamental to our purpose. How we understand the creation account and the significance of God creating mankind. And out of all creation, out of the entire cosmos, God gives mankind his image. Knowing that, studying that, is fundamental to everything. It speaks to who God is and to his purpose. It speaks to why we are here and why things are the way they are. It speaks to how we are to value one another, thus instructing us in how and why we love each other. 
and the need for physical interaction in the form of a community. And I know for some of us, interacting with one another sometimes is the hardest thing for us to do. Uh, G.K. Jesterton speaks to the difficulty of loving one another in light of this by saying, all men matter. You matter. I matter. It's the hardest thing in theology to believe. That all men matter. Think about that. Everyone matters. Donald Trump matters. Kim Jong-un matters. Every person who bears the image of God matters. So this theology, this knowledge, this truth, it speaks to how we are to treat the unborn as well as those at the end of life. It speaks to how we are to care and respect the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Our theology, our knowledge of the truth, helps us understand how we ought to act in the midst of a pandemic. Us abstaining from gathering as a body in person, this can only last for so long. There will come a time, and I don't know when, but there will come a time when we ought to gather back together. What we are doing now, ultimately, is an act of love and sacrifice out of love for our neighbor, which is wise, and we ought to do this. But we are not abstaining because we fear the virus. Because we don't. We shouldn't. And it's not because we don't think we won't get it or that it won't kill us. No, it absolutely can and absolutely could kill us. Sure, along with many other things. But the reason we don't fear it is not because we don't respect it. It's because we don't fear death. And ultimately, we trust a sovereign God. Therefore, we live as those who have eternal lives because that's what we have. So we have no need for fear of death. That's part of our witness. That's part of how we share the glory and the truth of the gospel. But we don't live recklessly or carelessly either. We take appropriate measures. We still buckle our seats. But gathering together, observing the ordinances, among other things, are commanded for us to do, even at the risk of death. So our staying home right now is done out of love for neighbor, recognizing that we have other means to hear the word of God and to worship together. By God's blessing, we have technology and we can use that. While at the same time, and I pray, I hope this is true for all of you that are listening, we understand that though we are gathering online, there is something missing there, that there is something lacking, that this isn't truly how the body of Christ is meant to worship in distance and not being together. At some point, we will need to come back together again. Theology, knowing it, walking in the truth, helps us understand the limits of what we give up in the name of love your neighbor. Love your neighbor is just not a get out jail free card that voids all things. There are limits to it. But if you are not walking according to the truth, if you are not growing in it, you can't know what those limits are. You won't even be equipped to properly enter into the conversation of, well, what are those limits? Because conversations do have to happen, and it's not always black and white. As much as our theology speaks to how we ought to live amongst one another, it also speaks how we worship God as a body, which is a corporate activity, which we do together with one another. John 4, 24, Jesus, uh, talking with the Samaritan woman, says, God is spirit. And the people who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So how can we 
rightly worship God if we do not know the truth, if we are not walking according to it? Well, we can't. And this is why what we sing must be accurate in the truth it portrays. This is perhaps the Achilles heel of the church today. So much heresy and false teaching is propagated by theologically poor songs. And think back, Arianism, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, Arianism uh, was that heresy was spread by a hymn that Arius made up, that Jesus was a created being, that he's not eternal. The church, I think, in this day and age has been seduced by the sounds of passionate melodies and chords of youthful emotions, where, where truth ultimately is sacrificed for fleeting moments of emotional and experiential ecstasy, as if the ultimate end of man is not knowledge of God, but an experience of God. But reality and truth is, any experience that has no truth, that is void of truth, ultimately is not an experience of God. Worship of God isn't restricted to Sunday morning music. It is ultimately, however, how we live, and theology teaches that as well. The Psalms are full of commands and desires speaking to this truth. I'll only mention a couple here. Psalm 86:11, Lord, teach me how you want me to live. Then I will obey your commands. Make me wholeheartedly committed to you. Psalm 43:3, reveal your light and your faithfulness. They will lead me. They will escort me back to your holy hill and to the place where you live. Speaking about the fellowship with God that we so desperately desire, that we do so desperately yearn for. If we want to abide with him into eternity, we need to learn how to abide with him here and learn how to abide with our brothers and sisters in Christ as he commands us to. This is why we commit our lives to the study and knowledge of scriptures. And it's not something that's, again, that's restricted to, to the man behind the pulpit. It's a command given to all of us. How else can you disciple your children, your co-workers, if you do not know it yourself? And we do so recognizing that we don't need to go anywhere else for the truth. Theology rooted in scripture, in the truth, is sufficient. Ian Bradley, in an article of Christianity Today on the topic of how Christians are to engage on the topic of ecology, um, he wrote this paragraph, and, and, and I think what he says can be applied uh, in other areas as well, not just to ec um, ecology. He writes, what we need is not, as is, is so often argued, a new theology of nature, but rather a return to the original message contained in the Bible and preached and practiced in the early church. Greening Christianity does not involve grafting onto it some alien philosophy, but simply restoring its original character. Indeed, it means stripping off a whole series of alien layers that have accumulated to reveal the original greenness of the Garden of Eden and the cross on Calvary. This essentially sums up the passion of the reformers. The reformers weren't looking away to start something new. They wanted to go back to what was original, what was real, what was true. They were calling the Catholic Church to go back to its origins, not to start something new. And I think it's argued the reformers did that. They went back to something new, and Catholicism went on to something that is new. I mean, reformers went back to what was old. And the Catholicism went on to something that is new. They created something new. They left the scriptures 
behind. There's no need to add to Scripture. There's no need to change it up. The Word of God, the rightful understanding of it, is enough to speak to all issues of this current culture and this current day. And it doesn't matter what culture you live in or what day you find yourself in. His Word is enough. It is fully sufficient. We do not capitulate to culture and allow culture to interpret scripture, as is the habit of so many nowadays. We don't allow external variables such as skin color, socioeconomic issues, or the majority view of society to interpret or frame how we are to understand God's word. God's word is enough in anyone who comes to us and says we need more, or that there is more out there, or that God's word cannot speak to this particular issue, ultimately is a liar and needs to repent of their falsehood. John is clear here that this commandment is one that is from the beginning, right? In verse 5 and 6, it is not new, meaning we have heard it before. We know this command, and we are responsible to obey it and to hold fast to it. The false teachers that John is rebuking here are trying to teach something new. But there is, again, no need for anything new. Jesus Christ, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, is enough. And knowing him is enough. No need to dress him up and make him pretty for society. If we abide in him, we remain humble and present him honestly, then his love, his truth will be known. His sheep hear his voice and they respond to it. His voice, not my voice, not your voice, no one else's voice, but his voice, which is the truth. And people will either hate it or if they are God's sheep, they will accept it. But people's response to the gospel message, that's not our main concern. Our main concern ultimately is to be faithful to God in all that we do, that we walk in the truth. And if we walk in the truth, then we will be walking in love and our behavior will reflect that reality. We, you know, we keep talking about the need for revival and we keep praying for revival. But I wonder if we pray for revival so that we ourselves don't have to do the heavy lifting of ministry. We want revival to happen, but not by breaking our own backs. If we want revival to happen, we must be willing to walk according to the truth. And in doing so, loving one another in accordance to that truth. And again, when we talk about truth, we're talking about God's word. We want revival. We need to be people of God's word, not people of programs, not people of such and such a discipleship movement or such and such book series, but people of God's word who know it, who we we bathe ourselves in his word. We, We can wrestle over his word. We We desire to have conversations over books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Psalms and Proverbs and and, and the prophets. And we can use the language of the Bible without having to define it every time we bring it up. Words like sanctification, justification, propitiation should be words common to our vocabulary. If we want revival, that needs to happen so God can use us. And that might mean we give up nights filled with Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, pick your choice, or whatever hobby or pursuit that keeps us from knowing him and being equipped properly to live according to his truth. If you were to dedicate 30 to 40 minutes a day of reading scripture 
you could read the entire Bible three to four times a year. That's only 30 to 40 minutes a day, depending on how fast you can read, right? And in 30 minutes, is, is not too fast. Uh, that's, uh, I'm giving a generous estimation here. So that's the Bible, the whole Bible, three to four times in a year. Most shows on Netflix or Amazon, just one episode or longer than that time. And we gladly give time to that. So judge yourself in how you use your time, recognizing that the one judge and one lawgiver is fully aware of how you use your time. So we must learn and discipline ourselves to work the field of theology so that we may be ready for the harvest when it comes. If we never work the field, if we never read, never study, never ask questions, never wrestle over the truths and the complexities of Scripture, we will never taste the fruits of his truth that we are meant to enjoy. Let us have a new understanding, or maybe for most of you, I pray it's most of you, maybe for today it's a renewed understanding that our need for theology is a need ultimately rooted in love. That when we labor to grow in our knowledge of God, that labor, it's, a, it's an act of love. We might be good, and not all of us are, are good at this, admittedly, at calling each other. For some, it's more natural to do that. For others, it's more of, a, more of a work. But we might be good at connecting with one another relationally, calling one another. But if that is absent to truth, what good is it? So let us combine all of our efforts for the sake of one another. Let us be holistic in our love for one another. Let us increase our knowledge of the truth so that we may increase our effectiveness of the deeds of love of which we share with one another. And we do all this ultimately so that we can glorify God in all we do. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that you are with us every day and that every day your mercies are new. Forgive us for our sins and our transgressions here today, the ones that we have committed this past week and the ones that we've committed just in the past 30 minutes. Help us with them, Father. Help us not to be lazy. Help us not to be ignorant. Help us to be emotional and not apathetic towards the desires of your heart, Father. Help us to care for what you want us to care for. Give us your heart, Uh, Continue to discipline us, Father. Help us to um, learn how to uh, be the men and women you want us to be. Help us to create habits um, and and new practices in our lives that allow us to grow in the knowledge of who you are, to be able to worship you effectively seven days a week, Father. Help us to be uh, the fathers, the mothers, the husbands, the wives, the, the children that you call us to be, to be the Uh, co-workers, the bosses, uh, the classmates, the the people you want us to be wherever you have us, Father. And so, Father, grant us wisdom and and continue to give your grace to us as we learn how to model and shape our lives to effectively grow in this knowledge that we can walk according to the truth so that we can know how to love one another, Father, both those within the body of Christ and those outside the body of Christ, so that we can be witnesses of your glory and mercy and grace uh, to those who don't know it. And I ask that you will grant us wisdom and discernment uh, as a church going forward, uh, how we should behave and act within uh, this current situation within COVID-19. 
19, that you help us to speak with gentleness, uh, that our speech will be uh, gracious um, and full of salt, Father, that it will be worthy to be heard, uh, that we will share the gospel into the lives of people who need it, people who are wondering, who are scared, who perhaps are uncertain about the future, who are experiencing anxiety. And for our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who know you, but yet are still struggling with fear and anxiety, Father, give them your grace. Draw them to your truth. May they drink of the well uh, that is your son, Jesus Christ, and the good news that he is and, and how all things are under your control. And that even this, this COVID-19 and, and, and all the governments and whatever the governments decide to do, they're all doing it under your sovereignty, Father. And that whatever may come, we can boldly go forth walking in full obedience to the truth, full of joy, Recognizing that one day all of this, all of this is going to come to an end. All these comforts, all these pleasures, all these pains, all these sufferings, all the things of this world will come to an end. And your rule will be firmly established. And, and the things of old will, will pass away and, and the new heaven and the new earth will be here forever. And that when, we, when we're in eternity, what is going on here will seem so small, so insignificant. Father, that's the truth that we want to know daily. And we ask that you will speak to us uh, through your word. And even as we sleep, Father, that you will bless us with, with dreams and, and just you will comfort us even as we sleep. And that as we rest at night, Father, that we, we thank you that we're able to lay our heads down, recognizing you're still working. You're still in control. And when we wake up, it's you're still in control. You're still working and you're ready. You are waiting for us. Father, be with those who are alone right now, especially those in isolation who are in their homes and apartments by themselves. Help us reach out to them and, and help them have the courage to call others as well. And may we receive all phone calls with charitable hearts. And may we do so, Father, thinking of you and thinking of the love that your son exhibited to us as he laid his life down for us. May we lay our lives down for others. We ask this, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.